Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You might have done something like this before, driving down the highway, windows open, listening to a record, singing along at the top of your lungs. For a lot of people in the 90s, that album of choice was Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, and that goes for the screenwriter Diablo Cody. You might have seen the first movie she ever wrote, Juno, but long before that, she was listening to Jagged Little Pill and feeling the angst. Little did teenage Diablo know... She'd grow up to adapt that album into a new musical, and she'd get to work with Alanis on it. Diablo Cody will be here to talk about that. Plus, some poetry from Hannah Shafi from her new book, People You Know, Places You've Been, which she hopes will make you think differently about the very mundane things you do every day. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Let's talk for a second about Jagged Little Pill, that album from Alanis Morissette that when it came out in 1995 became one of the monumental, generation-defining records pretty quickly. Not only did it go to number one in 13 countries, not only did it make Alanis the youngest person to win the Grammy for Album of the Year, but it's still one of the best-selling albums of all time. And Rolling Stone ranked it as one of the greatest albums of all time. But those are just like numbers and awards. The real impact of Jagged Little Pill is seen in what it's about. Heartbreak healing, empowerment, anger, accepting your own flaws, asking for love anyway. These things resonated with people, like especially women, all around the world. So as usually happens with a big record like this, over the years, Alanis was asked over and over again if she'd be interested in turning Jagged Little Pill into a musical. And she was kind of into it, but if there's one thing you know about Alanis is that she's exacting, she doesn't have to do anything, and she really took her time deciding on who she wanted to adapt her baby. She landed on Diablo Cody. Now this is a little bit of pop psychology here on my part, but like Alanis... Diablo had a lot of success early in her career as a screenwriter, not as a musician, but like major success. Diablo won an Oscar when she was 29. She won it for writing the movie Juno, which you might know starring the Canadian actors Elliot Page and Michael Cera, just getting some Canada in there. And again, really young, became one of the most in-demand writers in Hollywood. Jagged Little Pill is Diablo Cody's first Broadway musical. No pressure. And now it's on stage in Toronto at the Princess of Wales Theatre. So how destabilizing is fame when you're still in your 20s? How do you turn Jagged Little Pill into a musical at all? How do you address the fact that the song Ironic doesn't contain any examples of irony? And why wouldn't Diablo let us play her the clip of her winning the Oscar? Here's my conversation with Diablo Cody. Hi, how are you? (laughs) 
Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's really good. I was saying this to you before we turned the, the microphones on. I got to see the show, I think, two weeks before the pandemic, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I appreciate that so much. And, uh, you know, it, the pandemic obviously was uh, a heartbreaker for us because it, it took the show off Broadway. But it was um, it's it was it's it's been an incredible experience, even even with that hurdle to overcome. When did you first hear Jagged Little Pill, like the record? I mean, I was truly the target audience for that album because I was like 16 years old when it came out. And I was a, you know, a a Catholic teenage girl living in the suburbs of Chicago. And it was my first introduction to Alanis Morissette at all. And I just felt like the album was speaking directly to me through the speakers of my Ford Escort. You know, it was like... (laughs) instant connection but i feel like you know as a as a planet people connected to that album i mean it was so huge that summer did you you were driving around in your ford escort listening to it oh yeah absolutely it's such a great road album still what were the other records you were listening to in your ford escort then you know it's funny not really that kind of stuff like i was really into punk i was listening to like screeching weasel and op ivy and you know a lot of the sort of harder stuff you know riot girl bands and so Alanis was like, you know, she was MTV, she was pop, but you could really feel the authenticity of that emotion. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty mainstream. And that record got so big, I'm surprised that a punk like yourself wasn't like, ugh, Alanis, really? <laughs> you know what? I probably denied it at the time. <laughs> like, at the time, I probably, I'll be fully honest with you, and I've never disclosed this, I probably acted like I was a little too cool for it at the time. <laughs> but, like, I can assure you that I was not. <laughs> when did you get to meet Alanis? I met her, um, the very first time I met her was, you know, about this project. And I met her in Malibu at a very unassuming kind of cafe. And she was sitting in the corner and she was blonde, which I wasn't expecting at the time. And that helped because I was so (laughs) starstruck and so terrified to meet her. And the fact that she, we were in this unexpected place and that she she looked a little bit differently than I expected her to it helped because I could be like okay just pretend this is a regular meeting (laughs) with this nice blonde mom and not Alanis Morissette because like I I I just it was so hard not to geek out so she didn't want she didn't want it to be about her and then you have to create a story around the Alanis songs that makes sense yeah I I I was kind of under the gun because at that point, I was the last person to join the project, really. There was a director. There was an opening date on the books, which is very unusual. So it was like, beat the clock. And, you know, obviously all of Alanis's music. And then it was just like, the only thing we don't have is a script. <laughs> so I thought, oh, man, OK, I better figure something out. And I just communed with the album i listened to the album and i realized that the story was already in there and that i knew exactly what to do what, what do you mean by that you listen to the album and you realize the story was already in there alanis wrote she writes so many narrative songs like a song like perfect is telling a very clear and concise story about a person who's struggling to please others
for the song Mary Jane, which was the jumping off point for me. There's a very distinct character presented in that song. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take this character that Alanis created and make her the protagonist of the show. And, you know, it's like, so every, I was, I was learning as I went because I've never written uh, any kind of theater before or any kind of Broadway musical. There's this rule that every Broadway musical has an I want song. And it's like a song in the first act where someone is talking about what they really, really want, right? It's like part of your world in The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And... This album opens on an I Want song. I mean, it's called All I Want. So I just thought, oh, this is uh, this is a gift. To me as a writer, this album is a total gift because like, I see this. I see where it's going. One of my favorite moments, well, I have a lot of favorite moments in the musical, but a moment that I remember very vividly that I thought was a really interesting choice on your, on your part was, you know, for years after Jagged Little Pill came out, there was always these like stand-up comics and these kind of like hacky jokes about ironic and the song ironic, <laughs> like, well, these things aren't ironic. And a lot of like, mm. a lot of like uh, grown-up English majors being like, well, did you know none of those things are actually an example of irony? She kept naming all these things in the song that were supposed to be ironic and none of them were. They were all just unfortunate. <laughs> By the way, for people who are listening to this in the radio, Diablo's rolling her eyes right now. I love that you wrote, there's a song and a scene in the show that kind of addresses that. I kind of had to. And it was one of the first scenes that I wrote for the show, actually, because as I was, I I always like to attack the problems first. Like, you know, if you serve me food, I'm like, I'm going to eat the vegetables first because I don't like them as much. I was like, what am I going to do with ironic? Like I, cause it's, it's just kind of these anecdotes, the lyrics. And I was like, how is that going to fit into the greater story of the show? This is going to be really tough. And then I started thinking about the, sh- this, the song's life outside of the album. And it's like the, that sort of annoying criticism that, that Alanis had faced for it. And I thought, okay, what if I set this song inside an actual English class where a kid is having their work critiqued and they're being workshopped. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Hold up. Wait a second. That's actually not ironic. Right? If we're using irony as defined in Greek tragedy, I don't see how, like, a fly in your beverage applies. And so I was able to present the song as an essay that our teenage character had written and everyone in the class is kind of going that's not ironic you know embodying the critics and it was just kind of a meta fun thing to do I was worried that you know Alanis wouldn't like it and a lot of people are surprised that she does you know they thought like oh well wasn't she a little offended by that and I was like I don't know I think she had a really good sense of humor about it actually I think she was happy to have someone address it other than her I, I was hoping that was the case 
it con- it honestly didn't occur to me that she could be upset about it until I went online and people were like, well, that seemed disrespectful by Diablo Cody. I was like, I would never disrespect the queen. <laughs> Hi, you're listening to Q with Tom Power. And today I'm talking to the Hollywood screenwriter Diablo Cody. We're talking about writing her first Broadway musical, which is Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. There are a lot of parallels between her and Alanis. They both saw huge early success in their careers. We're both seen as kind of outsider figures. And I asked Diablo whether that had ever come up in her conversations with Alanis. Did you and Alanis bond over the fact that you both had success early? Like you won the Oscar when you were 29 and she had Jagged Little Pill when she was in her 20s. Was, was that a point of connection between you two? Here's the thing. I, I think I've tried to have those conversations, but I've always immediately felt stupid because Alanis lost her. She completely lost her anonymity. Like, she was mobbed by people. She was stalked. Like, she couldn't go to the store. Some people are willing to do just about anything to hang out with Alanis Morissette. That's the case of these people here. They've been here for hours. Whereas I didn't have that experience. Like, I did have a crazy, surreal kind of overnight success story, which I'm still, like, dealing with in therapy because that was, like, really stressful and, and strange what happened. It was great, but it's people don't realize it's, like, it's a lot. Like, we're not really wired to have that many cool things happen to us at once. And with Alanis, I think, like, her trauma went really deep because she is a really sensitive person and feels all the emotions around her. And to put a woman like that in a scenario where she's playing for, like, arenas. Can we present Alanis Morissette? And she was way younger than me, too. She was, like, 19 or 20 when Jagabella Pill came out. I was 29 when all that stuff happened. But I'm sure Alanis felt it. I'm sure Alanis felt like she, there's not many people she can connect to about having success that early. I'm sure she felt it. I'm sure she has cooler friends that. Oh, come on. She never, she never said anything. You guys never talked about it? I think, I think, I think we have talked about it, but I always felt like if I tried to compare our situations that I was somehow diminishing what she had been through, I guess. I understand that impulse. I, I I get it. And I'm I'm realizing now for people who are listening to this who may not know, be as familiar with your story, I should probably set up the story a, a, a little bit. So before you win the Oscar for uh, Juno, let's just let's just go back. I mean, you'd never set foot on a movie set before. You weren't writing Hollywood screenplays. Can you, for people who don't know, can you set up like the writing you were doing before all this? Yeah. I mean, I so I've always loved to write, but I, I always had a very kind of dark Midwestern pessimistic view of the arts where it was like, this is something I can do because I love it, but I'm never going to make a living at it. Like I didn't ever think I'd even be paid to write, but I loved it. And, you know, I was working in my twenties. I was stripping for like my job and I was writing about it online. And it was honestly just for fun. Like I was, it was cathartic to write about my crazy job. And just by a sheer stroke of random, bizarre luck. Someone who clicked on my blog one day happened to be like an actual legit manager, like a Hollywood manager. And he's still my manager to this day, 20 years later. And he reached out to me and he said like, hey, I think you're really funny. You should try writing a movie. Like he's like, I read scripts all day. Most of them suck. I think you could probably write a better one than what I usually see. And he wasn't creepy, by the way, which is shocking. I know that, like, I t- like I totally thought that's where it was going. No, least creepy person ever. So I uh, went, all right. I said, I'll try it. And I wrote Juno. And he and I just, like, I, I, don't, I still don't know. I still don't quite understand how it happened the way it happened. 
it was wild how quickly it all went down. Why was the first story that came to mind when you're told to write a, a, a movie about about Juno, about a young teenage girl having getting pregnant and, and trying to figure out whether she's going to uh, give, give the child up for adoption or abort? Like, why was that? Why was that on your mind? It's funny. I think I was like I was being pretty pragmatic about it. And at the time, the kind of movies that I like to watch were indies about family situations. Like I loved Little Miss Sunshine and I love American Beauty. And I remember thinking, okay, like I want to write something about a relationship dynamic that I've never seen in a movie before. So I started writing down different scenarios and I was like, I realized I had never seen a movie about the relationship between a birth parent, a birth mother. I'm sorry. I don't know what the correct nomenclature is these days because it moves a lot, but, and, you know, prospective adoptive parents. And I thought that's gotta be like such a weird complex relationship, you know, like you're getting to know someone who's, I, I don't know. I just like, I, I thought this is, I feel like there's a lot of dramatic potential here. So I started writing and I just connected to this little character of Juno. And I was very fortunate to connect with a great director who really is the reason that movie is so successful. So it was it was just a lot of things, stars aligned, you know. Another Canadian, by the way, Jason Reitman. And Jason Reitman, yeah. Elliot Page, Can- a lot of Canadians in your story. I'm, I'm seeing that. Totally. Yeah. And I love that, too. And it's I can tell you, like, when that movie was being made with... You know, Elliot and Michael Sarah starring, who are not A-list stars. Michael by also any Canadian, means. by the way. Also, oh, I know. Come yes, on. there there were so many Canadians, and we the movie was filmed in Canada as well. Oh my god! So, um, it, it was just like we thought we were making like the tiniest little, you know, cute movie that we were like, oh, the greatest thing we could envision would be like this movie going to Sundance. Do you know what I mean? Like we never thought it was going to be like a hit film. Didn't you write it at the Target in Minnesota? Yeah, I did. I mean, I lived in Minnesota at the time. And to this day, I love to write in food courts. Like, I love to go to like a like a Starbucks that's inside a Target or I like to go to the mall food court. There's something about the ambient noise that is very, uh, it, it's stimulating to me. I don't know why I still do it. Hey, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to my conversation with Diablo Cody, one of the most famous screenwriters in Hollywood, who just revealed to me hot news. She loves working in mall food courts. I mean, she wrote her Oscar-winning screenplay for Juno at a Target. So naturally, I wanted to follow up on the whole Oscar thing with Diablo. She won an Oscar when she was 29. But let's just say I did not get the reaction I was expecting. What's your go-to, what's your go-to food court? I like like a, like a pizza, maybe, or like a noodle. For me, yeah, it's like if you put me in proximity of like iced coffee and a Chipotle, I can work all day. I can win an Oscar. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I can do that again, to be honest. But like, I, I'll try. Well, let me let me play it for you. Just take take a listen to this. Wait, what are you playing? And the Oscar goes to no, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. You don't want to hear it? Yeah, no, I don't do that. Why not? That's too. That's that's too. I've never watched that or heard that. I don't want to hear it. You're like Adam Driver. Oh, does he do that? He doesn't listen to anything he does. Yeah, no, I can't do it. And I can't watch movies I've written. Like, it's just a whole thing. All good. Why? Oh, you can't, you can't hear no, yourself. No, I didn't mean to, like, oh, I didn't mean okay. to cause, like, it's chaos You're not causing studio. chaos. Do I, look, do I look chaotic? No. <laughs> you can't listen to yourself win an Oscar? I never have, so it would just be very weird. I'd... Are you sure? I have it if you want to hear it. No. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna force you to. I'm not gonna force I you just, to listen to I just. I. I. Any like. Any. Anything that like exists outside of my like personal experiences like, is very like. I don't know. I just can't do it. 
Would like no, it feels like it's not me or something. Like so I'm no I'm no Doctor Phil here. Like when you when you when you when you, when you listen, while I have the mustache when you listen to it you feel if you were to listen to it you feel I would feel like um what's the word I'm looking for like a depersonalization or something. Yeah. Like I'm like I don't know how to describe it. I just I I'm really uncomfortable. I don't watch myself and I don't listen to my dialogue. It, it, I, it's just like a thing. I don't blame you. I wouldn't be able to do the same thing. I wouldn't be able to. No, it really, it honestly hampers me in my career because it's like Jagged Little Poe was like a nightmare for me because they make you sit in the theater every night for previews. And I would be sitting there like, do they know this is my worst nightmare? <laughs> what what happens after you win that Oscar though? Like, does your, it's is, scary. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like turning bright red right now. Just thinking about it. It's like really frightening. It's um, the coolest thing that happened though, was after I won and this, I remember this vividly. They send you down a hallway to like a press room where you have to talk to a whole bunch of people. And when I was coming down this skinny makeshift hallway, Daniel Day-Lewis was coming the other direction because he had just one best actor and he's my favorite actor. Well, yeah, he's and the greatest. He had this. I mean, I love him so much. And that's my one of my favorite performances of all time. And he held up his Oscar at me kind of like triumphantly and smiled. And it was just the two of us in this hallway. And I was just like, this is amazing. That I remember. And then you have to go to a room and answer a bunch of questions and about you, being a stripper. <laughs> oh, and people were out, people wanted That's to That's all they wanted to talk about. So it was just a lot of that. And I guess you lose your, I mean, writing and blogging, especially an anonymous blog like you had, is, is one thing. You really lose your anonymity after you win an Oscar, too. Yeah, you do. I mean, I, I really keep, I, I keep a very low profile. Like, I don't go out and do anything. I used to. But um, I mean, I'm literally in a closet right now. Like this sums it up. I think, um, <laughs> you know, I it, it was weird for a second. Like I would get like recognized at times back in the day. And it was it was not for me. I'll put it that way. <laughs> like it would just send me into a total panic. But um, I respect the, the Taylor Swifts of the world. who can navigate a stardom and seem happy about it. We'll be right back. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm not like a super successful like Hollywood mogul. And the reason for that is I think I'm, I'm interested in doing something like very specific that is not for everybody. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. It's not that common for our screenwriters to be household names. But you're in the middle of my conversation with a screenwriter who has sort of become one. Diablo Cody is the Oscar award-winning writer behind movies like Juno. She won the Oscar for that when she was 29. Also for movies like Tully and Young Adult. And she made her Broadway debut writing the Alanis Morissette musical Jagged Little Pill. I got to see that show in New York. I'm not much for musicals. I'm not crazy about musicals. 
But I really, really loved it. It's excellent, and it's playing in Toronto right now. Anyway, to catch you up, today you've been hearing us talk a little bit about Diablo's life and career and, like, the surprising parallels her career has had with Alanis Morissette's, like getting famous young and feeling very scared by the attention. I mean, if if you missed it earlier, Diablo Cody wouldn't even let me play the audio of her winning the Oscar. Anyway, in the next part of our conversation, I wanted to draw one more parallel between Diablo and Alanis. And this one was a little riskier than the last one, but we went for it. And I wanted to assure Diablo Cody I'm not going to surprise her with another Oscar moment because we've already established she hates reliving her milestones. Here's more of our conversation. Okay, I'm going to play you something. It's not you. It's not from you. And it's not from any of your work. But I'm going to play you something. Okay, awesome. And it's – but – and – I'm playing it because I got a theory our producer and I have been thinking a lot about. And um, I'm going to play something. It's not you. Okay. It's not you. Thank you, India. Thank you, So that's Thank You by Alanis Morissette, which was the first single she put out after the massive success of Jack and Little Pill. I mean, theoretically, she had that song in the movie soundtrack on Invited, but like this was the first like real, like, we are following up Jack and Little Pill with this track. First, before I get to my theory, what, did you, what do you remember thinking about that song when it first came out? I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with the video. Um I was immediately when I mean that was honestly that might be my favorite song of hers in her whole catalog. So it's religious to me. It was not what people were expecting from Alanis. People were expecting Jagged Little Pill Two, and she swerved and came out with "Thank You." You after Juno have all these expectations around Juno Two or another <laughs> sort of wordy, pithy, emotional, great film. And you come out with a film that's also great, but a very different film in in Jennifer's body. Do you see that parallel between you and Alanis there? Absolutely. And it's funny because I've talked to a few musicians about this because there is this whole sophomore album thing that they deal with. And I feel like I had the sophomore album experience with Jennifer's body. And it's, uh, you know, that... That has wound up having this really happy postscript because now suddenly Gen Z has discovered that movie and they love it. And I've been going to screenings and I just did a Q&A last week for a packed house of kids. And it's just like it's the best thing. But when the movie came out, you know, it was this like totally different than Juno. It was this horror comedy. It was very dark. You are never a good friend. Even when we were little, you used to steal my toys and pour lemonade on my bed. And now I'm eating your boyfriend. See? At least I'm consistent. It completely tanked. It was a failure at the box office. It was a commercial failure, or excuse me, a critical failure as well. Like, critics hated it. Everybody hated it. And that was, that was tough for me because the whole reason I wrote that movie was because I knew it was the one time in my career that I was going to have total carte blanche. Like after you win an Oscar, they're just like, what do you want to do next? Anything. Right. Like Ari Aster doing Bo is Afraid. Like you, that was like his carte blanche. Right. So I was like, I want this is what I want to do, because that's the kind of movie I love. Like Jennifer's body is like who I am. 
And I uh, did it and I have no regrets about it now. But at that time, it was very difficult. You, you have managed in all, in all of your work to in, a, in an industry that when you have success almost wants to take more away from you, wants to like dull your candle even more. You, you've managed to have your voice pretty intact in everything you've done since then. And there is a, and I appreciate you saying that, and it's been really important to me. And there is a price that you pay for that. Like, I have like a fair, I, I am a successful person. I won't deny that, but I have like, you know, I'm not Ryan Murphy and I'm not, you know, I don't, who, by the way, has also preserved his own voice very effectively. But I mean, like, I'm not like, su- like a super successful, like Hollywood mogul. And the reason for that is I think, you know, I don't. I'm interested in doing something like very specific that is not for everybody. And I want to continue doing that. How do you keep doing that? I don't know. (laughs) Um, I'm just hoping at this point I don't get replaced by AI. So, you know, (laughs) I'm just trying to I'm trying to stay in the rodeo as long as possible. I always say I'm just trying to stay on the horse. Um, I adapt as much as I can. Now I've been working with like younger filmmakers, getting more into producing and stuff. So trying to take on more of like a elder statesman role. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, because for a screenwriter, you have a lot of visibility or you have I know you're in a closet somewhere, but as for for a screenwriter, you have a lot of visibility. It surprises me that I still don't quite understand why that is, but um, I'm grateful for it. It's cool to be a screenwriter with a semi recognizable name because a lot of screenwriters don't have that. In fact, it's a very disrespected role in Hollywood. You know, I have I'm friends with many, many screenwriters and some of them don't even get to come to set on their own movies that they wrote because that's how this industry works. So I'm just like if I if I've made a name for myself and I get, you know, some measure of respect, I feel really good about that. So so when something like the writer strike happens, are you like, well, I have I have recognizability as a writer. I, I, I better have some I better have some visibility here, too. Yeah. And, you know, and I did pick it and I I absolutely was in support of the strike. And like, you know, I'm never going to be like the spokesperson for anything because that is just 100 percent on my personality. But like, I I mean, that writer's strike was it wasn't it was really like it wasn't about me. Like, I'm not out there like pay me more. It was about like the writers who are struggling to make ends meet. And there are a lot of writers like that in the WGA. Before we go, I wanted to come back to Jagged Little Pill. And you talked to me a little bit about like being this this punk into Operation Ivy and and listening to Jack a Little Pill secretly and and or like maybe not <laughs> admitting that you thought it was so cool, but really feeling seen in it and really feeling like someone was singing your story there. As an adult, when you go back to that record now, what does that give you? It's so funny how there's so little about that album that feels dated. It actually feels and I always feel like such a hack saying this because it sounds like such a soundbite, but it truly is more relevant now than it ever has been. Like it is an entire album about about being comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is, I think, part of I think is so in the zeitgeist right now, this idea that like if we want to be better and we want to heal as a culture, we have to face some uncomfortable truths. And that's what Alanis has been singing about all along. Like you cannot put your head in the sand you cannot, you have to like, you have to swallow it down like a jagged little pill. You have to feel it. And it's, it's difficult. Like it's, that's the hard part of being alive is, is acknowledging how, how painful it can be. But like, it's, 
for me, like the album resonates more for me as a 45 year old than it even did as a 16 year old. Um, Diablo, so. I loved this musical so much. We're such big fans of your work here in our office. I was on my way in, and one of our producers on our show, who is 28, looked at me and said, you're talking to Diablo Cody. I loved Jennifer's body so much. So there oh. you go. I got See, that's, I live for that. I live for that. Thank you. I got to talk to Elliot about Juno not that long ago. Uh, and, and, and Vanessa, our producer today, we were just talking about how much your work is so meaningful. And thanks so much. Thanks so much for it. Thank you, Tom. Diablo Cody is the Oscar-winning writer of movies like Juno, Jennifer's Body, and Young Adult. Her first Broadway credit is the Alanis Morissette musical Jagged Little Pill, which is on stage in Toronto at the Princess of Wales Theatre. If you don't like musicals, I think you're still going to like this one. When you're out and about, doing your thing, do you ever stop to think about that person who's scanning their canned chickpeas next to you at the grocery store? sitting across from you on the bus on your morning commute? Do you ever look at these people and realize they're full people with their own lives and laughter and and tragedy and they've had the best thing that's ever happened in their lives happen to them and the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their lives happen to them? Do you feel that sense of connection with them sometimes, even though you're total strangers? Hannah Shafi has been thinking about those moments a lot and the power that they can hold. Hannah is an illustrator, essayist, and poet And this idea of all the little interactions we have with the people around us on a daily basis was the inspiration for her new illustrated poetry collection. It's called People You Know, Places You've Been. And in it, she takes you from salons to farmer's markets to the diner around the corner and asks if those seemingly mundane and small moments, moments with people we don't really know, is actually what life is all about. Hannah Shuffy came into our studio to talk a little bit about her new book, I Was Off. So she spoke to guest host Talia Schlanger and then read a poem from the collection. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to Q. Hi. So excited to be here. I can see the excitement on your face. I love it. I'm stoked. Good. Well, I'm glad to talk to you about this book. It's lovely. And you turn these everyday moments, like picking out a squash at the farmer's market or waiting at the doctor's office, into poetry. Mm-hmm. So what is it about these seemingly mundane, everyday interactions that are so interesting to you? I mean, it, it would be cool if real life was, you know, as exciting as like a big fantasy epic and we were exploring castles and fighting dragons and doing all that fun stuff. But real life is made up of very small moments. And I think we have to find ways to celebrate those or you sort of give in to sort of despair and loneliness and you feel like you're stagnating in life. But those little moments, they make up the majority of your life and they do leave little sort of little traces on you. And I think it was worth exploring and worth celebrating. Hmm. Almost like giving you a chance to see the poetry in your everyday moments or or elevating the experiences that make up the stuff of life by actually putting care and, and artfulness into them. Exactly. It's kind of like romanticizing the boring things. And people might think that that's silly to do, but I think you have to do it or you're just going to get sad. <laughs> like I, I, I find that if I'm able to find things that are intriguing or important or hopeful in these regular moments, it just it gives me energy to just make it through the week, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've divided uh, the book into these chapters with titles like Nemesis, supporting characters, anti-heroes, 
uh, and beautiful leading role. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to get at there? You know, people are always talking about having their main character moment. Mm-hmm. And I sort of was exploring, okay, what if we take all these little things and these average things and average people and we apply these sort of fantastical tropes and these like movie archetypes to them? Because if you are the main character, then that means, you know, there's a hero and there's a nemesis and there's there's a palace you have to get through, there's a dungeon you get trapped in. So it's sort of trying to take these really like otherworldly fantastical things and then bring them back down to earth and apply them to to daily life. And I think it also kind of asks us to figure out or at least think about who we are in somebody else's life because you're the main character in your life, but you're not the main character in someone else's. You might be their nemesis. You might be a supporting character. You might be just, you know, the beautiful woman they see on the street. Like, you don't know who you are in the eyes of others. And I do think we need to think about that more because sometimes we're a little, little too wrapped up in ourselves. It's kind of humbling. Mm-hmm. The, my One of my favorite pieces from this is Pink and the opening line of it. Do you mind just saying it? Oh, yeah. Just uh, the opening Opening line, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to grab it. The opening line, we linger in the people we know. Mm, that's one of those lines you have to sit with. It's it's true. And we, and we do. And it can be in very small ways. Like, obviously, we know the impact we've made on our friends and our family members. But you make an impact on, like, the most random people. Like, you might have just looked at someone on the subway. And, they, and that look has lingered on them. And they think about it. They've noticed something about you. You know, it could be positive. It could be negative. You don't really know. Mm-hmm. You're mentioning the, the subway. You talk about a lot of public spaces in this book. And mm-hmm. for so many of us, public space has changed a lot since the pandemic. Oh, yes. <laughs> how, how did it change the way that you see public spaces? You know, for a while, there was obviously a sense of loneliness because during lockdown, you know, you were just sort of away from these public spaces. And like normally when I'm on the subway, I hate being on there. Like I'm just like, oh, I hate this. I hate waiting for the subway. I hate being on the bus. Like, But when I was just sitting at home, I realized that without those public spaces, I just didn't, I couldn't connect to the world outside of me. I was not connecting to the world outside of me at all. Mm. And even like I was working retail for for a few years during lockdown and we did like curbside pickup. So I would take the subway, but it was empty. Like I, I barely encountered anyone. And I realized like, oh my gosh, like without these things that I normally would find really inconvenient and annoying, I'm not interacting with anyone. And I'm really not thinking about anyone but myself. It was just so easy to get wrapped up in me. And I think that's natural and it's, you know, it's something we do for for survival, but it also, I think, lends to this kind of like individualism and like moral apathy that I think is a bad thing (laughs) and it, it disconnects us and it sort of takes a little bit of humanity away from us because we're just, it's just me, me, me type, type thinking, you know? Mm. In a moment, you're going to read us, uh, a bit of poetry uh, from the book. It's called Never Have I Ever. Can you tell me a bit about, about this one? Um, so I was thinking of the the game, like the, it's like a game that kids play, teens play, drinking game, I don't know, Never Have I Ever. And I was just kind of thinking about sort of like what are my sort of like Never Have I Ever rules like for other people of like how I would connect with them. And I sort of take it from these like little, these little things that are kind of like, 
silly and insignificant and then lead up to those kind of big things. So it's hard to explain, but you'll get <laughs> you'll get the gist during the reading. Would you read it for us? Yes, I would love to. All right. From her new collection of poetry, People You Know, Places You've Been, here's Hannah Shafi with her poem, Never Have I Ever. So this is from chapter two, which is called Supporting Characters. And it's called Never Have I Ever. If you weren't a little traumatized by your mean middle school gym teacher, we can't be friends. Everyone's a little traumatized by their mean middle school gym teacher, except athlete prodigies, and maybe even still athlete prodigies. If you've never known a bad landlord, you were the landlord, and so we can't be friends. If you call everyone that looks just a little different than what you're used to sketchy, we can't be friends. And it kind of sounds like you're scared of poor people. If you like carbonated water, we can maybe be friends, but probably not, because it tastes like liquid dust. If you've never cried so hard that your heart was beating in your head, like really wailed and screamed and sobbed so primally like the toddler you once were, at least once in your adult life, we can't be friends. If you never listened to a guy talk on and on about a creative project that literally no one but him cares about because it only exists to feed his own stupendous ego, we can't be friends, and you're very lucky. If you are that guy, seek help. If you've never loved someone so much, so ridiculously, and they didn't love you back, and you really truly thought you would never love so big, so bright and unceasing again, but then a little time went on and you were proved wrong, because of course you can love again, and honestly, they literally were not that great. Relax. We can't be friends. If you've never been taken aback by how scary the world is sometimes, how meaninglessly violent we can be, unflinching in cruelty, overwhelmed by multitudes of suffering, tragedy that is only offset by the vibrancy of all our lived experiences, all the courage in when we turn to face the sun and continue, the sheer simple joy in any small insignificant moment in our complicated but pointless lives, we can't be friends. If you've really never looked up once at wires and ugly cement buildings and telephone poles silhouetted in an orange and purple pollution aesthetic, haze, sunset, and thought, well, I guess that really is beautiful. We will be friends once you see it. Hannah Shuffy is an illustrator, essayist, and poet. Her new illustrated book of poetry is called People You Know, Places You've Been, and it's out now. Uh, that's it for the show today. Uh, my joke when I do speaking gigs is um, I usually say, hi, my name is Tom Power, also known around the CBC as Dollarama Rick Mercer. But tomorrow, the real Rick Mercer will be here. Rick Mercer is back with his highly anticipated follow-up to his first memoir, Talking to Canadians. It's called The Road Years, and it's all about his early days creating the Rick Mercer report and his quest over those years to define what makes a Canadian. You'll find out whether he has an answer. That's tomorrow on the show. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.